Welcome to the Alan Turing Podcast with James Turing and some of the UK's most exciting and forward-thinking business leaders. Today, Alan is famous as the father of computer science and codebreaker of the Nazi Enigma machine and has been celebrated by the BBC as the greatest person of the 20th century. But it wasn't always that way. At the time of his passing in 1954, Alan's life had been defined as much by the tragic way in which he was treated by the country he had done so much to help as it had by any of his work in mathematics or computing. Alan's family are keen to do their part in building the kinder and smarter world that Alan envisioned all those years ago, which is why we've launched this podcast series in which James Turing, the great nephew of Alan, will be speaking to some of the women and men shaping Britain today, covering a range of subjects from sustainability and mental health to inclusivity and innovation. First of all, just a few words about the organisations behind this series. The Turing Trust is a charity run by the Turing family. They refurbish used IT kit, principally from businesses, install a range of fantastic educational software and provide it to those who need it most, principally in rural African communities. Their vision is that one day every child will be able to enjoy the transformative power of technology. If your business doesn't yet have a solution for reusing its old IT kit, please do get in touch. The other organisation behind this series is Boss Digital, which is an agency I launched in 2010 that specialises in helping B2B and professional service firms generate more business online. We're incredibly proud to be helping the Turing Trust accelerate their impact. So to reiterate, if your company does not have a strategy for its old IT kit and are sending it into landfill, please visit the Turing Trust website and they'll help you turn that waste into a tool that will transform the lives of thousands of students. Over to James. Hi, Richard. Thank you very much for joining me today. Delighted to have you with us. Just to begin, would you mind introducing yourself and your role at Microsoft, please? Great to be here. My name is Richard Potter. I am a digital strategy director for Microsoft's worldwide digital partnerships team, which means that I spend my day jobs working with some of the world's biggest companies, trying to help them reimagine their business models through the use of digital technology. Fantastic. Uh, Quite a title there. (laughs) So just to begin things off today, could you tell me a little bit about Microsoft's approach to sustainability? I think particularly one of the things that caught my eye was your carbon emissions target for 2030. Well, Microsoft has always been very interested. I'd say always for, you know, for decades been incredibly concerned with how much impact it makes on the environment. But the more recent announcements that Microsoft has made in the last couple of years have committed the company to being carbon negative by 2030. So what that means is that we'll we'll be reducing some of the historic carbon that we've created. So not just carbon neutral, but we'll actually be taking away the carbon that historically we've generated since our foundation in 1975. And then by 2050, we've made a commitment that that removal of the carbon will be complete, if you like, so that by by 2050, we will have taken away the carbon that we've created in our entire lifetime as an organization. Pretty good goal to have. And I read that, that this is working through some kind of internal tax. Is that right? Well, a, a number of different mechanisms um, are being used, you know, including afforestation and reforestation and sort of sequestering carbon in, in soil. We're also using clever forms of carbon capture inside some of our data center facilities. But internally, one of the motors, the tools that we use inside the organization is a carbon fee. And we've actually been using that since 2012 internally in the organization on our 
internal, what, what you would describe as scope one, scope two carbon production from a sustainability point of view. And as of last year, we're now extending that carbon fee accounting across our business models to take into account some of that external CO2 that we are aligned with through our scope three emissions. And then that encourages us to have broader conversations with our suppliers to reduce their own scope one, scope two, scope three emissions as well. So you very quickly start getting into a, a broader kind of ecosystem commitment around it. Brilliant. And you, and you find that kind of helps also incentivize throughout the entire team? Is, is everyone kind of working with that approach and mindset now? Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think this, this probably goes more to the values that we all have as employees. Within Microsoft, we're very committed to being a purposeful organization. And that purposefulness expresses itself in sustainability, but it equally expresses itself in terms of some of the responsibilities we have through using the higher performing bits of our technology. But yes, I mean, as, as employees, we are, we are very, very aware of the potential harm that large data centers and, and large machinery can do associated with our product. And we're always looking to, to innovate and to, to make our own commitments to, to reducing the impact that we have on the planet. And that's not just just from a carbon point of view, but it's also from a, a waste point of view. It's also from a water point of view. So the sustainability commitment that we have as employees extends much broader than just the carbon commitment that gets most of the headlines in terms of our conversation. Absolutely. And I believe it also kind of links in a bit to your AI for good movement as well. Is that right? Can you tell me a little bit about sort of the, the origins of that and how the the AI for good kind of leads into sustainability work as well. We have a a very clear view within Microsoft on what AI is there for. So AI from a Microsoft point of view is there to augment humanity. And we're very, we're very keen on emphasizing that in everything that we do. And that keeps us very focused on, on why we are doing AI. The AI isn't about supplanting human beings. It isn't about trying to do things instead of human beings. It's trying to do things to augment the power of human beings. So that's our our start point with artificial intelligence as a technology. And it's a natural extension of that, that editorial, if you like, for us to think about what does AI mean in terms of its role as doing good for the planet? We have very clear goals as a, as a company to enable every person and, and every organization to achieve more. And therefore, when we're looking at technologies like AI, we want to have a positive impact with that. And AI for good programmatically with inside Microsoft plays out in terms of four broad areas. There, there is a, an AI for Earth element, which is where most of the, the sustainability narrative that we've just been talking about exists. But we've also got programs within AI for Good associated with health, with accessibility, and and also for humanitarian action. So assisting refugees and enabling people to have better representation wherever they are, in in whatever circumstances they are. So it's a very programmatic representation of how we can deliver positive impacts from a really, really important technology. Uh, and I believe it also links in a little bit towards some of your values regarding inclusivity and equality. Is that right? Yes. I mean, there's, a, again, a continuing extension of Microsoft's values. That's 
if I think about my position inside the company, that's something that I probably, I experienced through the 50 or so communities that have representation across the company. And Microsoft has always been very invested in trying to enable all diverse communities to have strong representation across the organization. And you'll see much of that externally, but it's something that we very much live internally. It's all underpinned with a humility, it feels, a, a humility that, that sits at the heart of what Microsoft employees would, would probably call a growth mindset, which is about our desire to make sure that we're always humble and learning rather than having any notion of hubris about success and, uh, and the fact that we've, we've achieved things. So it's about recognizing our desire to, to continue to improve, to recognize that, that we, we can always get better at things through strong programs like allyship to, to be aware of the support that we can provide others and the development journeys that we have as, as individuals. And I suppose one of the kind of overarching questions that it has that uh, always comes around whenever discussing these non-profitable activities is how do you attach a return on investment to these kind of projects and programs? Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's, it is really important. At the end of the day, um, the ability for Microsoft to pursue its broader purposeful ambitions is ultimately going to be enabled by an increase in its share price, uh, a profitability within the organization that can enable it to invest in these kinds of ventures going forwards. And clearly activities like sustainability can have a direct bottom line impact by by making processes more efficient, by reducing cost and uh, enabling greater greater profits that can be reinvested to, to do good. But, but equally, some of the more inclusivity focuses associated with that bigger CSR agenda that that organizations can have in this space. Microsoft makes great use of those advances in innovation. And if you look at some of the innovations that now exist in some of the common Microsoft products like Outlook or or PowerPoint or or Microsoft Teams for conferencing, a lot of the, the features that we are now using to differentiate those products and clearly make money out of selling. Those had their origins in terms of inclusive design from the outset. So if, if I give you a specific example, when you're doing a presentation with PowerPoint, you can now open up the microphone on your device as you're making that presentation, whether that's Uh, in a physical room or it's more typically nowadays by a remote platform and you can caption that PowerPoint in real time doing a real-time speech-to-text transcription of what you're saying so that at the bottom of the screen you can caption your voiceover on top of your slides and equally that can be in real time translated multilingually so if you've got a multilingual audience They can follow along, not just in one language, but in whatever language they choose. That's a great feature. And ultimately, it's a a differentiator in terms of the product that Microsoft sells. But the origins of that particular feature actually came from an accessibility challenge that we ran many years ago to try and think about how we could provide captioning in some of our tools uh, for people with hearing disabilities. So a focus on these more CSR type activities 
can also very directly be embraced and, and absorbed within some of the, the commercial models of, of an organization in the long run. Exactly. No, that's certainly a fantastic example of when everything kind of works out uh, more wonderfully than anyone initially imagined. But I'm sure there's also been times where you've had the opposite impact when other stakeholders have been slightly conflicted in wanting to look the best as always, but maybe not perhaps walking the walkers quite as much. Are there any examples you've had of that happening? Um, I think there is always a big challenge to make sure that you are you are being guided by strong principles in what you do. We work in a, I mean, I, I particularly, I work in a very global organization that, that works in different cultures and different cultures have different interpretations of various morals and, um, and values associated in each of those countries. And quite often you can work in different countries that have different interpretations, but provided you're guided ultimately by a consistent set of principles, um, that enable you to, to show your working, to explain why you've made decisions and why a particular direction has been pursued. It enables you to, to act responsibly wh- wherever you go, to not just post-rationalize and justify why you're taking a particular line of action, but, but more importantly, when you've taken an action, to, to perhaps learn from what the impact of that action was so that those missteps that sometimes happen when people perhaps don't apparently walk the walk, people can go back and reflect on, well, well, what was the principle that I was following at the time? Why did it have that dysfunctional outcome? What would I do differently next time? If you can have those principles and that, that that growth mindset that's then associated with that, then you can make sure that you're not repeatedly causing problems for yourself and for society more broadly. Exactly. No, and I imagine that's something you probably uh, take into your work. Uh, I understand you've done a bit of charity work with a Malawian charity called Temwe. Is that right? Yes. Well, I mean, and Temwe is a big part of my life outside work. Um, I was brought up in Africa. I spent the first 20 odd years of my life uh, in, in Africa. And as I developed in my, in my career, I, I got more and more involved in social projects associated with Africa. Uh, I think probably nine, 10 years ago now, uh, I got involved in a, a charity based in Bristol, where I live, uh, that work in uh, a very remote part of northern Malawi. Uh, and that charity is called Temwa. Um, and now I'm delighted to say that I'm the, the chair of the board of trustees and um, work with wonderful people, um, both in the UK and, and also on, on the ground, uh, serving some very hard to reach communities in, in significant need uh, in a, a very beautiful part of the world. Fantastic. Um, and for those people who will be listening and won't quite know what Temwa does, can you just give us a little introduction to the charity's work? Yeah, Temwar is, is primarily defined by the region that it serves, a region that is very hard to reach. Um, the, the particular communities that we work within are poorly served by roads, by infrastructure. There are times of the year in the, in the rainy seasons where it is almost inaccessible. And we, we work with the communities to provide them a package of development activities that are very distinctively community-led. Um, Temwar is a um, community-led charity. Everything that we do from a fundraising point of view, from a programmatic delivery point of view, and then from a, a monitoring and evaluation point of view, is led by the needs of the community as they're able to express them to us. 
uh, and we pull together the right interventions for that community to to help them become uh, more sustainable and, and able to develop as thriving communities in the future. Brilliant. And I think that's one of the very exciting things that Tenware seems to be doing is a kind of carbon balancing approach. Um, how do you find this kind of changes the dynamic instead of asking people to donate to a charity, but instead asking them to pay to offset their emissions type of question? The two sides of that are really interesting for Tenware actually is, is that we, we've been planting trees um, as part of Tenware for, for years, many years now, and primarily as a kind of a, an afforestation, a reforestation activity that sustains the, the welfare of the soil and the ability to sustain communities and crops in that area. Um, so we, we um, are, we're incredibly skilled from a delivery point of view at planting trees and we, we know which species of tree work really well in which environments. We know which forms of husbandry and care are necessary to enable those forests to not just be planted correctly, but also to thrive and to ultimately take carbon dioxide out of the air. That's that's something that we've been doing for, for many years now. Um, the difference now really is primarily on the fundraising side of things, is that whilst in the past our, our fundraising activity would have been going out really primarily for that, that afforestation, that the foresting, uh, forestry husbandry. Uh, type of programs. Now it's it's much more explicitly associated with providing organisations and individuals um, the opportunity to offset and balance their their carbon. So we're changing the way that we uh, we describe those impacts, how we we represent the the packages that we currently do, and very importantly, it, it changes the way that we report and we account for it in terms of the CO2 uh, consequence of what we're doing, rather than necessarily the slightly indirect forms of, of impact on, on well-being and, and communities. Brilliant. Uh, and I know carbon markets are something that most people find even the concept somewhat challenging in the idea of how can you buy a ton of carbon? But how do you find that relates? I mean, have you gone down the sort of carbon accreditation route or is it something that you're able to do on a more local level? Our goal historically has really been associated with the impact that it can have on the community. So in that context, we haven't found, felt it necessary to have formal accreditation from bodies like Gold Standard or, or, or elsewhere. But as we've, um, as we've grown our, our Tenwa Carbon Balance offer and it's become more impactful and, and more significant, and as demand has grown and grown, we have now decided that we're going to begin the journey towards formal accreditation of that. But that we're very careful as we do that, that that doesn't deflect from the primary purpose why we're doing Tenmo Carbon Balance. It is a program that sits within the broader package of community driven development that we're doing in the region. So we, we don't want it to be a tail that's wagging the dog. It is a component that benefits from a broader uh, developing community as much as it feeds back into the, the livelihoods of the communities that do the husbandry and do do the great work that ensures that carbon continues to be taken out of the atmosphere by these trees. Um, and I think a bit of a, a personal aside, which you'll have to forgive me for, but I believe you've done some work with uh, IT in community libraries, is that right? The region that we serve is not graced with incredibly strong connectivity. Let me put it that way. I think the last time that I was out there, I was very much struggling to try and get a 2G mobile phone signal for, for most of my trip while I was while I was there. So we have to we have to sort of calibrate what we're able to do with technologies in these communities. But 
Amongst other things, we have built a community library by the Lakeshore, a very beautiful building in a very beautiful location. We've uh, provided some technology to support uh, the community in those areas. Uh, and we've also uh, contributed to buildings in uh, some of the schools in the region as well. We'd love to do much, much more with technology. And um, uh, James, uh, you know, you and I uh, would have a great conversation about how we can support each other and, and help these communities with their technology needs in the future. Yes, absolutely. No, that is exactly the vision, I think. Certainly for the Turing Trust, we're sort of built on that belief that uh, technology is something that can truly empower communities to do for themselves, just given the opportunity. Brilliant. So I think that's everything that we wanted to cover today, Richard. So thank you very much. Thank you.